Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Reading During Recess. I'm Terry, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah, and I'm a writer. And today we are going to be discussing The Slippery Slope, which is book 10, and The Grim Grotto, which is book 11 in the children's book series, A Series of Unfortunate Events by Lemony Snicket. So The Slippery Slope was released in September 2003, and The Grim Grotto was released in September 2004. Shall we jump into a plot summary? Let's do it. Book 10 opens up where book 9 left off with Sonny, who has just been kidnapped by Olaf and his troop, being carried up through the Mortmain Mountains by Olaf and his henchmen. Meanwhile, Klaus and Violet are hurtling down the mountain in the recently detached caravan wagon. And they manage to save themselves using one of Violet's inventions, which is a drag chute made out of hammocks, which is, again, like all of her inventions, hugely improbable. But they manage to save themselves, but they lose the caravan wagon and everything inside, and they're just sort of left on their own in this isolated mountain range. Violet and Klaus begin to make their way up the mountain to try to rescue Sunny, but they are first attacked by a huge swarm of vicious, mildly poisonous snow gnats and take refuge in a cave. Like gnats, an infamously summertime bug. Yeah, and infamously benign, you know, like they don't... Yeah, they do nothing. They, they do don't nothing. even really land on you. No, well, they do land on your eyeball sometimes. <laughs> But yeah, snow gnats are mildly poisonous, and they also possess the ability to form threatening shapes. Oh, yeah. Remember? Like, they can make a giant arrow. So meanwhile, Sunny is still in the clutches of Olaf, Esme, and the rest of the henchmen, and she's being forced to set up camp and do all of their chores, and she recognizes that she can't escape because she and the troop are at the top of Mount Frott, which is the highest peak in the area. But she does realize that her siblings will have a really clear view of her if she's able to reach them with any kind of signal. And meanwhile, in the cave, Violet and Klaus meet the Snow Scouts, a group of accommodating, basic, calm, darling, emblematic, frisky, grinning, human, innocent, jumping, kept, limited, meek, nap-loving, official, pretty, quarantined, recent, scheduled, tidy, understandable, victorious, wholesome, xylophone, young, and zippered children. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Led by a man named Bruce. <laughs> to be clear, that is the Snow Scout Pledge, where they promise to be all of these things. My favorite is Quarantined. <laughs> I think that's great, because they're definitely out and about. <laughs> like, that's sort of the whole, like, scouting premise, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, that one's just inaccurate. I also love Kept. <laughs> <laughs> I love Zippered. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I mean, that one is accurate, though. Yeah. They are zippered. So that one is probably one of the few on here that checks out. Human is also a given. I love emblematic. Of what? (laughs) And of course, xylophone. So the group is led by Bruce, who the uh, Baudelaire's vaguely recognize as the man who sold Uncle Monty's reptiles after his tragic murder. And they also meet, or I suppose not meet, Bruce's niece who happens to be Carmelita Spatz, the vicious bully from Proofrock Prep, who repeatedly referred to them as cake sniffers. Yep. Cake sniffing orphans in the orphan shack to be. Cake sniffing orphans in the orphan shack. shack. <laughs> so, 
The Baudelaire's are still on the run and are suspected murderers, but they manage to hide their faces with these large masks under the pretense of protecting them from the snow gnats. Um, and these masks are like fencers' masks, like they're lots of mesh that they can see out of, but hide their faces. And there's one other snow scout who is also wearing this mask and who doesn't reveal his identity. But... He does drop hints in the form of VFD phrases like very fascinating drama and vain fat dictator. And so the Baudelaire's interest is piqued. And that night, Mm. the masked boy wakes them up and leads them up a chimney, which I would say in general, you shouldn't do, you Mm. know, with a stranger. Mm. Almost never. Behind a mask. But if he's been speaking to you in code all night, you know, maybe... Who knows? Um, <laughs> you can try something new. Get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Well, he promises them that the chimney is a shortcut to the VFD headquarters. I love the Snow Scouts. Honestly, dream extracurricular activity. <laughs> anyway, meanwhile, back at the ranch on the mountain, that is, Sunny uh, is spying on Count Olaf's troop while she does chores for them. And one morning, the troop are joined by two mysterious figures who are described as having an aura of menace. This would be a man and a woman who announced that they have successfully burned down the VFD headquarters. Specifically, he is the man with a beard. Man with a beard and no hair. Yeah, and a woman with a hair. And a woman with a hair. A hair. Just just the one. (laughs) She has to be very careful with it. (laughs) Honestly, tag yourself. Yeah, a woman with hair and no beard. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) I always thought they sounded terrifying. Yeah. In the Netflix series, they're old. Mm -hmm. But I always imagine them as being, like, not young, but kind of, like, middle-aged, like, maybe, like, in their 40s, which I viewed as being more threatening somehow. Yeah. I I don't know. Like, that they were kind of sleek and terrifying. I think they're one of those, they're a character that's just made less frightening by having a physical presence at all, you know? Yeah, Like, seeing them on the show, they're automatically going to be less scary than whatever it is you were imagining. And they scared me, ooh. Yeah. Yeah, so these scary people have announced that they've just successfully burned down the VFD headquarters. Obviously, this is horrifying news to Sunny, but amazing news for Olaf and the troop. They give Olaf the rest of the Snicket file, with the exception of page 13, I think it is, which is still in the Baudelaire's possession. And he, and she, the man with no, the man with a beard and no hair, and the woman with hair but no beard, give Esme what looks like a green cigarette, which she's thrilled about because cigarettes are very in, um, but when she goes to smoke it, it just sends out this enormous amount of very thick green smoke. So she abandons it as it is kind of disgusting uh but which sunny realizes she can use to cook breakfast she makes a wonderful breakfast and signal to her siblings real quick i love sunny's i love every description of sunny's cooking yeah i know like i want a cookbook to be produced that is just sunny's quick meals (laughs) yeah raw toast they're so creative yeah the raw toast is my favorite toast tartare yeah (laughs) that's what it is Oh, she's so cute. So, meanwhile, back at the chimney, (laughs) Violet and Klaus and the mysterious boy managed to crack the code to open a vernacularly fastened door. 
and enter to find, of course, the VFD headquarters has been completely destroyed by the fire. And it's very sad because you get this description of what it seemed like to have been there. And it sounds like just a magical place. Yeah. And of course, the Bodlers had really been assuming they would find their parents. So they're heartbroken because they were like, there's supposed to be someone here. There's supposed to be a survivor of the fire. And the boy says, I think there is a survivor of the fire um, because he's been holding on to that one and takes off his mask. And it's Quigley Quagmire, the third triplet of Isadora and Duncan. Ah! Ah. That twist really, really rocked my world when I was a kid. It did mine too, but I also think part of me was like, I wasn't like super concerned about Quigley. I wasn't like, wow, if there's anyone who I'm really hoping to catch in book 10. (laughs) Yeah. It's the the third. Because I was kind of like, great, finally, we're free of the quagmires. No, you're not. Well, Terry, it was your fault for thinking you could ever be free of something that is called a quagmire. (laughs) Like a bad penny. These bitches keep turning up. (laughs) So Quigley's here. Okay. Sorry. I don't have a problem with the Quigley. Quigley. What's the word I'm looking for? Plotline. But I was deeply disappointed to realize that the survivor was not one of the Baudelaire parents. Yeah. But Quigley has information, and he tells them more about the VFD schism, which we know was a disagreement that divided the organization into two sides. One that we and the Baudelaire's have always felt was the good side and the bad side. And he and the siblings spot a plume of green smoke in the sky coming from the top of Mount Frott. And they consider one of the possibility that it might be a signal from Sunny, but of course... It could also be something sinister. Yeah, Quigley, it is very disappointing that he's not one of their parents, but at least he is the most useful quagmire we've encountered so far. Yeah, seriously, if it had been Isadora, like, I don't know what I would have done. (laughs) We are once again subjected to one of her poems in this book, despite the fact that she's not here. Wait, we are? What is it? Yes. Oh, my God. I'll find it. It's Wall. So it happens in the next scene because Violet and Quigley decide that they are going to climb up the frozen waterfall while Klaus stays at the bottom and tries to crack a code um, of refrigerator items. So Violet makes these ice climbing shoes using forks. So they get really excited when they realize that Violet's shoes are working. And Violet says, let's not celebrate just yet. We have a long way to go. And Quigley goes, my sister wrote a couplet about that very thing, Quigley said, and recited Isadora's poem. Celebrate when you're half done, and the finish won't be half as fun. Shut up! (laughs) No one cares. And then, Violet smiled and reached up to test the ice above her. Isadora is is a good poet, Violet said, and her poems have come in handy more than once. Isadora brings nothing to the table. Anyway, so we thought we were shot of Isadora, but we're actually never free. During their ascent up the waterfall, Violet and Quigley rest for a moment on a ledge. And then, of course, because Violet is a girl and Quigley is a boy, it is implied that heterosexuality is happening. (laughs) Um, I regret to inform you all. Because Quigley is, man, Quigley is so horned up. They're on the ice for like six minutes. They stop and they have some raw carrots. And then Quigley, and then a Violet well-known goes, aphrodisiac. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bunnies. Come on, it's true. What are name, they famous name for? Name a hornier animal. 
So Violet says, aside from the remains of the fire, this is a very lovely view. Very lovely indeed, Quigley said, but he was not looking at the view beneath him. He was looking beside him, where Violet Baudelaire was sitting. It has been about a half hour. <laughs> he was also hitting on her while she was inventing. She's like frantically trying to figure out an invention, and he's like, just sitting there like, I've always wanted to see the great Violet Baudelaire at work. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm sorry. No one deserves to be tethered to a man less than Violet. Sarah, take us from here. I need oh, to yeah. breathe. <laughs> so Violet and Quigley find Sunny at the top of the mountain, but she decides not to leave with them and to instead stay at the top of the mountain so she can continue spying on Olaf and his troop because she knows that they are planning something terrible. And Violet agrees, realizing that her sister is no longer a baby. Her sister is now, I guess, a toddler, which to me still feels too young to be oh, at the top of a mountain by herself. But. Right? Because it's like this whole big thing where Sunny's like, I'm not a baby. And Violet's like, I guess you're right. You're not. And I'm like, yeah, okay. She's She also can't ride in without a car seat. Yeah. You know? And she can't for like another six years. <laughs> like, we're not anywhere near top of the mountain. Yeah. Anyway. So back at the VFD headquarters, Klaus has been looking inside the fridge to solve a code referred to as verbal fridge dialogue involving very fresh dill and other ingredients. And it's not clear what it is, but the children find another reference to the sugar bowl that Olaf has been searching for. All the VFD's references, like the acronyms, reading it as an adult, sometimes I was like, Wait a second. You're kind of phoning it in. Right? I'm like, all right, that's a stretch. <laughs> like, because as a kid, I didn't know what a lot of the words meant. And so I was like, yeah, you know, not questioning mm -hmm. it. But it's not verbal fridge dialogue because no one is saying anything. Like, in order exactly. for something to be verbal, it has to be allowed. Exactly. So, I would agree. So I'm going to fact check VFD on that one. They could have done better. Get their asses. Um, also, it's like, does it have to be everything? Yeah. You couldn't just be like, it's the fridge code. So uh, Violet, Klaus, and Quigley come up with a plan to lure Esme down the mountain using the green cigarettes and to trap her in a large pit, hoping to arrange a hostage trade with Olaf. This is one of my favorite plans of theirs. And I was right? so disappointed as a kid <sighs> because at the last second, they decide that they don't want to do it because it's immoral or whatever. And so- Or um, whatever. <laughs> They're and like, does this make us as bad as Olaf? No. No. No, it definitely doesn't. I mean, it gets like, to this idea of moral relativism, which these books try to start to play with, with like, are there rule, strict rules for morality or does everything seem moral from the person who's doing it point of view? But it's like, I mean, trapping a horrible villain in a pit so that you can get another horrible villain to give you your sister back, and then you give the horrible Your villain. infant like, sister. Like, that's uh, not an infant toddler. Oh, my bad. You're right. I forgot. Uh, yeah, like, it's it was really frustrating, because even as a kid, I was like, I mean, yeah, it's not the nicest thing to do to trap Esme in a pit, but if you're going to trap someone in a pit, she deserves it. Right? And like, your not, back's kind of up against the wall you're here. You're not leaving like, her in there forever. Exactly. Then, of course, at the last minute, they chicken out and they put on masks and they're like, Esme, don't go any further or you'll fall in the trap. So instead, they basically drag her ass back up the slope while she yells mush <laughs> behind them. 
because they're hoping that they can still sort of arrange a trade or maybe reason with Olaf or I don't know what these kids are thinking half the time. So they reach the summit and they demand Sunny in exchange for telling Olaf where the sugar bowl is. They don't know where the sugar bowl is, but at least that at least then they're willing to lie, you know. Exactly. So the sinister man and woman summon the eagles. <laughs> The eagles are a group of enslaved birds. Uh, they're literally referred to as as being enslaved for whatever reason. I didn't know that that was a thing you could do with, like, birds. Yeah. Um, and the villains reveal that they've set a trap to capture the snow scouts in a huge net. <laughs> I love that. Back to basics, you know? <laughs> Just a good old-fashioned net. Nothing fancy. Exactly. And see, those are some people who are willing to carry through. You know what that is? That's initiative. So Violet, Klaus, and Quigley take off their masks to try to warn the Snow Scouts, but they're unsuccessful. And Olaf tells the two white-faced women, who are his hench women, to throw the casserole dish that supposedly contains Sunny off the mountain. Yes, side note, Sunny has been sleeping in a casserole dish (laughs) for the past few nights. So she's not a baby, but she can fit in a casserole dish. So I don't know. You do the math. People who can fit in casserole dishes are not to be left alone on mountains. Yeah. Or really anywhere. (laughs) But Sunny had put an eggplant in the dish and then put a blanket over it so that it looked like she was in the dish, but she really wasn't. And so the white-faced women refuse to throw the casserole dish containing what they believe to be Sunny, but is in fact an eggplant off the mountain. They abandon Olaf. (laughs) Then Olaf is like, fine, I'll throw the casserole dish with the baby in it off the mountain myself. And then Sunny pops out from behind the car. Surprise, she's not in the casserole dish. It's been an eggplant the whole time. Crazy. It's a very exciting scene. I love the scene where the two white-faced women leave. Me too. Um, I love that they are, like, not helpful, though. And I I love two things. I love that he, A, lets them go. He's like, man. (laughs) And they just, like, walk down the mountain, you know? They're like, "Ah, bye. And I love that they're not like, you know what? We've had it. Because they they say, you know, they were like, we've lost people we love to fires, too, you know? There's obvious implications that they are rejecting his villainy, you know? But they're like, we're going to, I'm going to head out, you know? (laughs) The Baudelaire's are right there. They're like, hang on. (laughs) And the white-faced women are like, deuces. (laughs) They were like, you know what? I'm tired of the drama. (laughs) I would like to, I no longer wish to be a part of this narrative. (laughs) And they walked right out the narrative. Yep. Anyway. (laughs) So then um, the eagles use a giant net to capture all the snow scouts along with... <laughs> Sorry. It's just so silly. I know. What is the explanation <laughs> that they give for wanting all the snow scouts? I think the idea is that they're like going to have more hench people who have been recruited by force, but the snow scouts are children. Yeah, like in the in the TV show, they say that they're going to like they lay more backstory for the snow scouts and say that like all the snow scouts come from wealthy families in this troop. It's like the wealthiest troop in the city, and then they steal all the children, and then are gonna they burn down like all this all their parents' houses, and then they have all these like rich orphans. But I don't think that happens in the book, does it? No, in the book, I mean, they say that they're gonna burn down their houses, but it's not implied that any of them have money. Yeah. It. And then, like, in the next book, they're being used for manual labor. So you're kind of just like, man, damn, he really just took all these kids, like, to row, row, row your boat. We'll get there. (laughs) 
So the eagles use the giant net, capture all the snow scouts, along with Hugo, Colette, and Kevin, who you'll remember from the Caligari Carnival, and the hook-handed man. And Olaf reveals that he plans to recruit the snow scouts by force, and Carmelita joins him willingly because Carmelita is awful. Does Carmelita have parents? Like, we know she has an uncle, but she sort of just allows herself to be adopted by Esme and Olaf with no indication that she has anywhere else to be. It is an interesting question. Well, she's very fixated on the fact that the Baudelaire's are orphans, which could be projection. Perhaps she is also, <laughs> perhaps she's also an orphan. No, because then she'd be in the orphan shack. No, because like Duncan and Isadora had been in the orphan shack until. Yeah, I think it. that maybe she was in the orphan shack until Duncan and Isadora came along. Maybe. Because, you know, they got promoted to a broom closet. Maybe she got promoted to whatever's better than the broom exactly. closet. I love Carmelita lore. <laughs> Carmelore. Carmelore. So Carmelita crowns herself false spring queen and drives the maypole or whatever it is deep into the ice, which splits it. <laughs> You know, destroying the frozen waterfall, which gushes. And the Baudelaire's and Quigley manage to escape the mountain on a toboggan. And at the last minute, Quigley is separated from the group and calls out to them to meet him at a location that they cannot hear. Poor Quigs. Can you imagine that your parents name, like, your two siblings Duncan and Isadora and you get named Quigley? (laughs) I have some shit to say. Yeah, I'd probably pretend I was dead, too. (laughs) Also, quickly, I, you know, was giving him props for being very competent. He knows a lot, did a lot of research, seems to be able to take care of himself. But it is weird that this entire time when he was presumed dead and knew that he was alive. (laughs) Yeah, he, he didn't try to talk to someone and be like, hey... I'm not dead. <laughs> yeah, he talked to Jacques Snicket. He talks about knowing Jacques, I think. What about, like, I don't know, going to someone who, like, a f- family friend and me, like, hey, anyone know where my family is? He, he was just like, well, I guess I'll do this one on my own. Time <laughs> to go it alone. Like, he, he acts like he's living in some sort of post apocalyptic yeah, setting. He really does. <laughs> but he's not. Like, it's like, you just could have gone on down to the police station, really. <laughs> I'm not dead. <laughs> I don't know why I gave him a British accent. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. Because it's Man, like, it's... poor Quicks, post-apocalyptic wasteland. That is literally how he acts. <laughs> like, why would you just join the snow sky? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, climbing through tunnels and stuff. It's like, right? You can, you're, you can go on the street. You haven't done right? anything wrong. The, the Baudelaire's are like, would-be felons. Quigley's just some guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> call an Uber. <laughs> it's not that serious. All right. Well, do we want to share some favorite excerpts? Yeah. So I really enjoy the slippery slope. I love Sunny sleeping in a casserole dish. I love the cigarettes that are not cigarettes. I love Count Olaf calling Sunny Baby Lair. Oh, Baby Lair. (laughs) That's a fun nickname. Count Olaf, at one point towards the end of the book, when things are starting to fall apart a little for him, 
He says, nothing is going right for me today. I'm beginning to think that washing my face was a complete waste of time. Which is a thought I've had. I, literally. <laughs> You're like, damn it. I was so excited to realize that this book has my favorite Lemony Snicket aside. He's talking about Violet's drag shoot, and he says, The hammocks immediately caught the rushing air and swelled out behind the caravan like enormous cloth balloons, which slowed the caravan down quite a bit, the way you would run much slower if you were dragging something behind you, like a knapsack or a sheriff. <laughs> I forgot about that one. That's a good one. I also like this quote from the Lemony Snicket. He says, Fate is like a strange, unpopular restaurant filled with odd waiters who bring you things you never asked for and don't always like. Because mm-hmm. I like to imagine it's the anxious clown. Yeah. Checks out. Mm-hmm. That was an odd waiter. Before we move on to discussing book 12, let's hear from the youth of America. So it's time for, Ooh. and now, a word from us kids. Let's hear what the kids had to say about the slippery slope. So these reviews come from Dogo Books. The book was beloved on Dogo Books. This first review comes from Rizzy Vizu 15590485763232. I hope that's not like a phone number or something that I just said. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they I said sleep with one eye open Rizzy Vizu. <laughs> So they wrote, I love this series. It is so good. You never know what will happen next. What will Olaf do? Will he get them? You never know. You don't. You don't. You can usually guess, though. Yeah, he usually does. He usually does and then doesn't, you know? There's a pretty reliable, like, layout to the books. Yeah. He will probably not get them. Yeah, but maybe Rizuzu isn't good at pattern recognition. (laughs) (laughs) Max, wow. Man. He got max, just max, no numbers. Damn. <laughs> Rizzy Vizu 15590485763232 could never. <laughs> max said, I love this book and all of the other books, but I watched the show and then I got into the amazing books, which are even more descriptive and just filled with mystery and anxiousness. I love this series and can't wait to read the next book, and I hope that more people get to enjoy this amazing book. I highly suggest it if you like mysteries. <sighs> There was no punctuation in that. Sure wasn't. The next review comes from Uman Bro, who says, <laughs> three orthans. That's O-R-T-H-A-N-S, orthans. Three orthans were cast away to an academy. They read the series to find out more. Huh? <laughs> None of those things. No, they're not. Not for this one. (laughs) No, none of that happens in this book. Stellar review, though. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Cuddles13 says, I read it in bed. Stayed up until 2 in the morning. Sunny was awesome! I like Quigley. Five stars. (laughs) Well, Quigley doesn't like you, Cuddles13. He's already got a woman. (laughs) So you just mind your own business. Cuddles is a reliable through line. I think she's reviewed almost all of these Dogo. Um, oh man, you're right. Serious oh. unfortunate about Cuddles, I'm sorry. I can't I can't say rude shit to you. <laughs> she's the real one. Tom Battens said, This book is really good. I'm reading it no and read it ASAP. I think he means I'm reading it now. Yeah. But I like no. It is beautifully written. <laughs> And is another good book in a series of unfortunate events series. 
You can never stop reading. And I stayed up two hours reading it on my my Kindle Paperwhite. <laughs> TM. <laughs> I love the, the product placement there. <laughs> I love that the punctuation or the capitalization is very inconsistent in this review, except for Kindle Paperwhite. Yeah. Which is definitely <laughs> being treated like the proper noun it is. <laughs> on my Kindle Paperwhite. Okay, Jeff Bezos, I see you. <laughs> I love you can never stop reading. It feels like threatening, perhaps. Cheese lover one, two, three <laughs> says, It is a very exciting book. There is suspense at every corner just waiting to pop out and give you a surprise that you knew was coming but didn't think it would come that way. I recommend this book for third graders and up. Third graders <laughs> with high reading level. Love the little self-aggrandizing. I know. I, kids are so obsessed with their reading level. They are. I was too. Um, there are many illusions in both of these books. We'll start off with The Slippery Slope. Lemony Snicket loves peppering in little references to other writers and historical events and things like that. So, for example, VFD is described as having a mechanical instructor named C.M. Kornbluth, who is probably named after the science fiction writer Cyril M. Kornbluth. That's a great last name. Mm-hmm. Violet uses a knot she invented called the sumac knot and states that she named the knot after a singer she likes, and this is probably a reference to Peruvian singer Ima Sumac. Uh, Klaus also quotes Nietzsche, uh, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And when you look long into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. Okay. <laughs> I assume this is when they're debating the pit debacle. <laughs> I personally am very pro pit. I'm pro abyss. I'm pro becoming a monster. I mean, sometimes the least evil thing to do is to trap evil in a big pit. Right? Do you think if given the opportunity, I wouldn't trap so many people in a big pit right now? Yeah. If I had the resources to trap the people causing me the most problems in my life in a big pit right now i do it in a second okay but i will say side note they need to be in a lot of different pits because if you put all the worst people oh. together in one pit then they're gonna organize and yeah we can't and they that. could stand on each other's shoulders <laughs> oh, probably no. and, and they're going to really they're going to tall. become worse because they're only going to be exposed to each other so when they exactly if they do escape and emerge they will <laughs> escape and emerge <laughs> they will end us all yeah. and we can't have that so yeah I support Sarah I think we should dig lots of different pits and then trap a bunch of people and if I could do it I would yeah and I might <laughs> what if that's what holes was really about <laughs> <laughs> then they need to dig deeper six feet is not enough yeah if you guys haven't seen holes get out there kids Digging up, oh, oh, dig it. Oh, dig it. Dig, dig it, it up, up. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah. You've got to go. Got to go. Dig, dig those, those holes. holes. <laughs> he was really singing it, Zigzag. I was feeling it. I love Zigzag. <laughs> All right. We might be off track. Yeah. Um. <laughs> All right. Back to business. So the Baudelaire's and Quigley Quagmire are escaping from the top of Mount Fraud after the waterfall starts rushing, 
and Sunny offers Rosebud, which prompts them to use the toboggan. This is, of course, a reference to the movie Citizen Kane. Rosebud is the first and last word that is uttered in the movie, and it is also the name of a sled that the character, Kane, owned when he was a child. And spoiler alert, I believe it's burned up at the end of the movie. So No! Yeah. Yeah, I don't mean to brag, but I have seen Citizen Kane, so... Damn, I was about to ask. I was like, you sound like you really saw the movie. I did see the movie exactly one time. Damn. Exactly one... Did you have a good time? Mm, Let's not overstate things. I saw the movie. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. (laughs) Anyway... So on several occasions, Sunny uses the term Matahari to refer to her spying on Count Olaf and his troop. Matahari, Matahari, first and last name, was a Dutch spy during World War I and was also, I think, like renowned for her beauty. I love that Sunny is just like in the know on these things, you know? Yeah. It is like, really interesting, actually. She communicates on this level th- where she's making all these really sophisticated references and... And also with her cooking, too, she just seems to have, like, this deep knowledge of culinary things. And with right, Violet like and... tartar. Yeah, yeah. And with Violet and Klaus, we understand where their skills come from, because Klaus has read all the time, and Violet has practiced. But Sunny just, like, <laughs> came into Sunny's this world. Sunny's just like a savant. <laughs> just knowing all this stuff, I... They're always like, yeah, Klaus is uh, a genius reader you know and violet is an incredible inventor and sunny got four big teeth you know and i'm like sunny is brilliant yeah (laughs) sunny is smarter than all of you sunny is possibly omnipotent i don't know anyway oh (laughs) sarah do you want to do the next one yeah this one's great and i didn't realize it as a child but continuing on with her insults sunny also says bushaney which means you're an evil man with no concern whatsoever for other people. And this utterance is a combination of Bush and Cheney and was most likely used by Handler to protest against the Iraq War. So that was a good one. That was a good one. So towards the end of the book, uh, when the Baudelaire's are trying to figure out how to get to the last safe place, Sunny says Godot, which means we don't know where to go and we don't know how to get there. And this is a reference to Waiting for Godot, an absurdist play by Samuel Beckett, in which the two main characters are waiting endlessly and in vain for an unknown person to arrive. Again, Sunny, what? (laughs) Man. And every day she gets reduced to her teeth, you know? Yeah. It's just like being a woman, you know? (laughs) You know all these things and all people want to talk about is your four really big teeth. (laughs) All right, now shall we take the plunge into the Grim Grotto? Let's do it. All right. So we're going to give you guys a plot summary for book 11, which opens with the Baudelaire's being carried down that rushing stream on their broken toboggan. And meanwhile, the fire set by Olaf's troop is starting to spread through the hinterlands, and the siblings are only barely safe in the water. And (laughs) even they are not, not very And then they are finally rescued by a submarine which rises out of the water and asks them for a password. And they guess correctly that it's the VFD motto, which is, the world is quiet here. Real quick, I love the world is quiet here. Me too. It is my 
Right? It is one of my favorite combinations of words. I know. It is such a pleasant. I've always found it very comforting. So on board the submarine, which is called the Queequeg, the siblings meet Captain Wittershins, who is an insufferable member of VFD. He's an old friend of their parents, which doesn't say much about their parents, and (laughs) (laughs) is just generally thoroughly exhausting. Should we mention what about him is so exhausting? Yeah, so he has like a catchphrase where he just says, I, all the time, which I guess is like... And he also says everything else. Yeah. Like, it's endless. It's a stream of consciousness. Yeah. And it's not fun. I will say, as as someone who read this book by listening, just this most recent time I read it, I listened to the audiobook. And it was exhausting. Because at least when you're reading it, you can see when he's going down on one of his spiels and, like, start to skim a little. Yeah. But I just had to clench my jaw and wait it out. Ooh, I am sorry. Yeah, honestly, big flop, Daniel Handler. Captain Wittershin's character is not funny. This whole book, Sarah and I will get into it. It's not my favorite. We'll discuss. Yeah. So overdone, and it's so long. Yeah. Like, so much of this book is just him talking and saying these long, rambling, multiple sentences, and each one is punctuated by the word I. You know, anyway. the um, the Netflix series made the right call and just cut him out of it entirely. He, really? Yeah, he's not in the, ep- the Grim Grotto episodes. He's missing. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah. I can't wait. They also, the Baudelaire's also meet Captain Wittershin's stepdaughter, Fiona, and the ship's cook, Phil, who is the old co-worker, the optimistic man from Lucky Smells Lumber Mill. You might remember him you from might having remember his leg him. crushed. <laughs> in one of the goriest scenes in a children's book. Yeah. Captain Wittershins also insists on calling him Cookie because he's the cook, which is rude, right? Yeah, that feels patronizing. So the crew are searching for the sugar bowl, which was thrown downstream, and tell the siblings that they have less than a week before the meeting at the Hotel Denouement. And people on both sides of the schism are going to be there, including people who have the potential to destroy VFD permanently. So Sunny, Klaus, and Violet are happy to be included. They jump right in. Sunny helps Phil with cooking. Violet tries to help Wittershins fix the Queequeg's telegram device. And Klaus starts examining title charts that might lead them to the sugar bowl. So Klaus examines the title charts and determines that the sugar bowl should be in the Gorgonian Grotto, which is located near Anne Whistle Aquatics. And Wittershin tells them that Anne Whistle Aquatics was founded by Aunt Josephine's brother-in-law, Gregor Anne Whistle. Ike's brother. Ike, you might remember You him. might remember Ike <laughs> from being torn to pieces by carnivorous leeches. Yep. Just then, the crew notices an approaching submarine on the sonar and realizes that it is Olaf, and so they manage to avoid detection, but then they spot another, more enormous shape on the sonar, which is a massive, mysterious object shaped like a question mark, and which Wittershins refuses to talk about, and which we never learn what it is. Nope. He tells them that like some things are even more evil or unspeakable or whatever than Olaf. The man is largely useless. He doesn't divulge a lot of information. I love this series so much, but there are some things that I'm like, come on, man. Like, 
Yeah, well, it's when stuff like that happens, I'm like, okay, well, then it's because no, like, Lemony Snicket doesn't know what that thing was. Exactly. But I'm like, it just, because it's not a big feature of the next book or the the final one. No. Right? No. So that night, Fiona talks about her family and reveals that she has a long-lost brother named Fernald and that Wittershins has always told her that her mother died in a manatee accident years ago. Snicket later reveals in a series of, like, asides that this was a lie i would love to know what the manatee accident was yeah talk about a harmless animal yeah i mean it has to be 100 percent your fault right if you encounter a manatee and you end up dead you've done something really wrong the bar for surviving a manatee is so low Wittershins also mentions the Snicket siblings who fought on the noble side of VFD. Jock Snicket, who, of course, we know he was murdered in the village of Foul Devotees. Devotees, sorry. Kit Snicket, who was apparently a good engineer. I think she helped work on the Queequeg. And a third sibling, who is mentioned only briefly before Wittershins is cut off by Fiona. They also talk about a mysterious message that they had found in the verbal fridge dialogue, which was left to someone named J.S. in the VFD headquarters, and they wonder who J.S. could be as Jacques Snicket is dead. Fiona researches the Gorgonian Grotto in her mycological books because she's super into mushrooms, and she realizes that the cone-shaped cave is home to a rare and deadly mushroom called the medusoid mycelium. This mushroom waxes and wanes but just one of its spores is deadly enough to kill within the hour and the grotto is a remote quarantine for the fungus which could have devastating effects on the outside world so they bottleers know that they need to go to the grotto to try to find the sugar bowl but obviously it's very dangerous because there is this deadly mushroom so the next morning the bottleers awake and find that the submarine has arrived at the grotto but is damaged and Fiona, Klaus, Violet, and Sunny, who is just going to float along in a diving helmet because she's too small to fit in a suit, are going to be sent in due to their small size because Phil and Wittershins can't maneuver the tiny cone-shaped grotto. So they come across a cave eventually inside the grotto that is not covered with water, so they're able to, to stand and enter and take off their diving helmets. And it appears to have been visited by someone or at some point occupied by many people from VFD. And it's completely filled with odd items and is also, they are horrified to realize, an apparent breeding ground for the medusoid mycelium, which starts to wax and begins to quickly pop up out of the ground and fill the space. Yes. So the children take refuge in a corner of the cave, and while they wait for the fungus to wane, Klaus finds a poetry book and looks to see how it relates to VFD. He solves some of the code, though not all of it, and Violet finds a letter to the now-deceased Gregor Ann Whistle from Kit Snicket, and they realize that Gregor was going to use the mushroom to poison the enemies of VFD, and that Kit was working on a way to dilute the poison in a factory on Lousy Lane. The mushrooms apparently poisoned the entire aquatic center, And Violet also finds a newspaper article that she tells Fiona is too blurry to read, but this is revealed to be a lie, as Violet is clearly concerned by what she is able to read in the article. So the children manage to escape once the mushrooms have waned, but when they come back, they find balloons printed with VFD 
and nothing else. So they realize that the Queequeg has been abandoned. And to their horror, they also realize that a spore has made its way inside Sunny's helmet and is rapidly poisoning her. This is, like, the most distressing scene. (laughs) Yeah. And obviously, you know, they're desperate to save her, but Fiona refuses to let them open the helmet because that could potentially release the fungus, which would endanger everyone. And at this point, Fiona is heartbroken because she doesn't know where her stepfather is and he's the last family member she has left. But she says that she's the captain now. I'm the captain now. (laughs) And takes control of the ship and goes to work on an antidote and asks the two siblings to fire up the engines. Violet is clearly suspicious, but Klaus is down bad. (laughs) He really, really wants Fiona. This has been made clear, and so he obeys the orders. So there's some tension. Yep. Because, like, it's like, Violet, come on. Like, you got some action, and now, like, you're just going to cock-block Klaus. That's not very cool. (laughs) So the ship is then um, captured and engulfed by Olaf's ship. And Olaf comes down into the ship and tells the children that he has been at the Hotel Denouement and is preparing his final scheme. But he is also continuing to search for the final piece, which is the sugar bowl. And he's working on his villainous laugh, which is decidedly unfunny and overplayed. (laughs) Another running gag that just isn't really that fun. It just falls so flat. Yeah. Every time. And then in the next room, the Baudelaire's and Fiona realize that the stolen ship is powered by dozens of rowing children. Um, So Olaf has put all those snow scouts to work. So these are former snow scouts or students from Proof Rock Prep. Esme is also wearing an octopus costume, and she (laughs) whips the children with the Talia Telly Grande from the Carnivorous Carnival. So there's just a lot going on. Um, It's too much, you know? I'll say it. I feel like Lemony Snicket was trying to do what he does best, but he did it too hard. Yeah. You know, he tried to play into all these little gags. Yeah. And it was just overpowering. Yeah. Carmelita's also there. The gang's all here being spoiled rotten by Esme. And the ship is named after her, the Carmelita. So Olaf takes the siblings and Fiona to the brig, where he tells them that the hook-handed man will be interrogating him. But when he arrives, Fiona and the siblings are shocked to realize that it's Fernald, her long-lost brother. (gasps) And Fiona is heartbroken that her brother is working as a villain, but Fernald defends his work by saying that no one is entirely good or evil, but is more similar to a chef salad where there is good and evil all mixed together, which, I, you know, is, like, fair, but like, come on now. It's a spectrum. And there are some things in some people's salads that are decidedly not in other people's salads, like the tendency to kidnap and murder, yeah. which I would argue is not in my salad. So Yeah, and olives. Yeah, thank God. Ugh. So uh, Violet then reveals that the newspaper article that she found in the grotto was written by Jacques Snicket and proves that Fernald burnt down in Whistle Aquatics and that Gregor died in the fire. And Klaus realizes that one half of the VFD schism wanted to put out fires while the other half started them. Fiona begs Fernald to let them escape back to the Queequeg to save Sunny, who is still dying in the helmet. <laughs> She's a little busy. <laughs> And Fernald agrees on the condition that they let him come along, and Violet remains deeply suspicious of Fiona and Fernald, 
but Fiona insists that she can't abandon her sibling, and <laughs> Klaus, meanwhile, is too horny to argue. Uh, so while the submarine's crew is distracted by one of Carmelita's dance recitals, the children and Fernald attempt to escape back to the Queequeg. Fernald and Fiona are caught, but manage to convince Esme that Fiona has joined the team, distracting her while the siblings escape. And back on the Queequeg, Sunny is near death. This scene is, like, horrifying. So at this point, Sunny has been described as letting out a series of ragged coughs and desperate wheezes. And you're basically listening to this baby suffocate to death. So they realize that there might be something that they can use in the cooking materials to save her, but they don't know what it is. And they finally, they pull her out of the diving helmet and it says at first their sister looked completely unchanged but when the wheezing young girl opened her mouth they could see several gray stalks and caps of this horrible mushroom splotched with black as if someone had poured ink into sunny's mouth wheezing horribly sunny reached out her tiny arms to each of her siblings and grabbed their hands oh my god Sunny opened her mouth as if trying to say something, but the elder Baudelaire's only heard the hoarse, whistling sound of air trying to make its way past the mushrooms. They're literally growing inside her throat and mouth. Yeah. It is horrifying. Yeah, it's really, really gross. So yeah, Sunny has been busy dying throughout this entire ordeal. <laughs> and to just make it even sadder, like, while they're desperately looking for anything to save her inside the Queequeg, Violet realizes that the balloons, along with the cake she finds, <laughs> were a reference to Violet's 15th day, VFD. It's her birthday. And just like Klaus's, it passed without either of them noticing because their lives are just an endless <laughs> stream of misery. Mm-hmm. So the siblings are reading Fiona's books and realize that the antidote being developed on Lousy Lane was horseradish, which will kill the fungus. But they have... They can't find horseradish anywhere among the cooking materials until Sunny manages to choke out the word wasabi, which uh, she had found in the grotto. And thank God the siblings are able to save her life. When I was a kid, the logic of that didn't really bother me. I was like, yeah, it's a substitute. I don't think I knew what wasabi or horseradish were. But wasabi and horseradish, I don't know. They're not very similar. <laughs> No, you're exactly right. Wasabi and horseradish are different plants of the same family. Okay, well, at least they're of the same family. Yeah, so as Sunny recovers, although she did just have to eat a spoonful of wasabi, which also sucks. Yeah, I'd rather die, honestly. Just let me go. (laughs) So as Sunny recovers, the siblings realize that the telegram machine has started up again, and they receive a voluntary factual dispatch from Quigley, one that was also sent to the unknown J.S., and Quigley wants the Baudelaire's at a coded location by Tuesday, the next day, two days before the meeting at the hotel, and the verse fluctuations declarations code that Quigley uses references poems by T.S. Eliot and Lewis Carroll, and the siblings haven't read these poems, but they managed to find secret volumes of poetry that Wittershins had hidden away. And so Klaus solves the first riddle in the poetry and learns that the Baudelaire's have been asked to meet Quigley at Briny Beach. Briny Beach being the start of this whole series where the Baudelaire's are when Mr. Poe tells them that their entire home and parents have perished in a terrible fire. Briny Beach is also a location that is mentioned in this Lewis Carroll poem. So it's kind of this interesting full circle moment that the narrative takes. Mm -hmm. 
In the middle of interpreting the second poem, the siblings are interrupted by Olaf, Esme, and Carmelita, and to their horror, Olaf reveals that they are just minutes away from the hotel and that Fiona has officially joined Olaf and his troop. I can't stand Fiona. Yeah. So Olaf and Esme are triumphant and decide to plunder the Queequeg and look for things to steal. And meanwhile, Violet and Klaus attempt to reason with Fiona and beg her to <laughs> to not fucking do this. Mm-hmm. And one of the, they offer her the mushroom sample inside the helmet, which she could use to research. And she's clearly intrigued by this idea. And suddenly <laughs> Olaf returns and is like, sick. <laughs> thank you and starts talking about all the people he can extort and murder with this deadly fungus and fiona is horrified but (laughs) not enough i guess yeah just then everyone spots the mysterious question mark on the radar again and olaf is clearly frightened and sends everyone to the battle stations to prepare to escape and though she remains loyal to her brother and decides to stay with olaf's troop fiona uses this as an opportunity to let the baudelaire's escape so Violet mans the controls of the Queequeg while Klaus navigates their way out of the Carmelita, and they successfully escape, ultimately making it to Briny Beach by Tuesday. So when they arrive, shockingly, in another full circle moment, Mr. Poe appears through the fog, coughing, of course, mm-hmm. and says that he received a message from J.S., who he assumes is uh, the Daily Punctilia reporter Geraldine Julian. So, like... You know, <laughs> not JS. Uh, the message said that he needed to meet the Baudelaire's on the beach, and he tells the children to come with him to the police station where they'll set everything right. But the siblings, Violet in particular, have cracked the coded message, which she realizes states Violet taxi waiting, and they notice a taxi up the beach. So Violet leads the siblings away from Mr. Poe to the taxi. And when they enter, they find a woman they have never seen before. She introduces herself as Kit Snicket and begins driving them to the Hotel Denouement. Yeah. Yeah, this... I just... I don't find this book funny. I mean, it's not... It's not awful or anything, but, you know, the running gags... And normally the running gags are what Snicket does best, but the two in this book that he's really committed to are the Captain Wittershin saying I all the time. Um, Count Olaf, various villainous laughs, and they're just not funny bits. Like, this book feels like someone else wrote it, and they just didn't do as good a job. I will say the sunny part was very horrifying, but honestly, that's the most gripping part of this entire book. The rest of it is, like, I could take or leave it. I agree. I also just find some parts of it, like, logistically confusing. I've always found... Right? How are they in the ocean? Yeah, how are they in the ocean and then they're in a cave and there's they're not underwater anymore? Right? So they were going through, like, the hinterlands on, like, a stream, which suddenly just, like, opens up into the ocean? Was the Queekeg in the stream or the ocean? Yeah, I don't know. It's not one of the best. Yeah, not your best, Lemony. I think that, yeah, this was probably my least favorite when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But shall we see what the children have to say about this book? All right, let's talk about it, kids. This first review comes from We Should, who said, Aw, <laughs> look at Sunny's little diving suit. And that's the whole review. 
I love that it implies that we are currently having a shared experience. <laughs> Sunny doesn't have a little diving suit. That's the whole point. Yeah. Sunny has a helmet that becomes infected with a deadly fungus that fills her lungs. Aww. And mouth. <laughs> Look at Sunny's predicament. Nish2580 says, I love it how three kids can do so much and how they use their instincts to figure out problems that come in their way. I would recommend this book. Five stars. I want to be clear, that was all caps for I would recommend this book. Cuddles 13 is back. Cuddles! She said, liked the book, but not Carmelita Spatz, if that is her name. <laughs> I don't know. She was not having it. Yeah, I don't know. Where does know. this mistrust come from? <laughs> if that's even your real name. Your real name. <laughs> Carmelita Spatz. Uh, 5M Herrera said... The children, named Violet, Klaus, and Sonny, have to live with a very bad man and had to do a play with the bad man. And Violet had to pretend that she was merging him. <laughs> I love it. This person and the other person just read different books. <laughs> yeah. Also, can we please strictly refer to marriage now as merging? <laughs> that is so gross. All right, so let's move into some illusions now in the Grim Grotto. So let's start off with some of the obvious ones. Queequeg is a reference to a character from Herbert Melville's Moby Dick. The Gorgonian Grotto is a reference to Gorgons, who are characters in Greek mythology. Specifically, the Gorgons are three sisters, one of whom is the famous Medusa, with snakes for hair and who had the power to turn anyone who looked at them to stone. And we see Medusa again, and of course, the Medusoid mycelium. Mm-hmm. And there's a portrait of Herman Melville, who is, of course, the author of Moby Dick, on the front of the Queequeg Cruise uniforms. There's a lot of references to writers in this book. They really, like, hammer down on the fact that VFD likes to read. Literary people are good people in this universe. Yeah. Um... Klaus says that Edgar Guest is his least favorite poet. And the hook-handed man, Fernald, and the Baudelaire's are arguing at one point, And Fernald says that people are not either wicked or noble, that the only difference between the Baudelaire's and him are the portraits on their uniform. So the Queequeg people have Herman Melville's portrait on their uniform. And the people from Olaf's submarine have Edgar Guest. And Klaus said, we're wearing Herman Melville. He was a writer of enormous... Sounds like a brand name. I know. <laughs> Who are you wearing? Herman Melville. It's from his spring collection. <laughs> we're wearing Herman Melville, Klaus said. He was a writer of enormous talent who dramatized the plight of overlooked people, such as poor sailors or exploited youngsters, through his strange, often experimental philosophical prose. I'm proud to display his portrait. But you're wearing Edgar Guest. He was a writer of limited skill who wrote awkward, tedious poetry on hopelessly sentimental topics. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And so then, of course, this naturally led me to research a bit more about who Edgar Guest is because he's being slandered. Oh, yeah. Like, like they went at him fully. Not only is he like, oh, maybe not that good of a writer, which, you know, most people aren't, to the face of evil. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so, the symbol of despicable deeds. So now I would like to tell you all who Edgar Guest is. Um, his full name Hit it. is Edgar Albert Guest. 
He was a British-born American poet who became known as the People's Poet. So I guess he's like the Princess Diana of poetry? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) His poems often had an inspirational and optimistic view of everyday life. He was born in 1881 and died in 1959. I am not going to say I'm an Edgar Guest apologist, but I will say that he sounds perfectly pleasant. And um, yeah. I mean, it's just some guy, just you know? some guy writing stuff that rhymes. And I will say that it's awfully bold of Klaus to be as judgmental of him when he loves Isadora's verse. Right? <laughs> Despicable. I, I, and I want to tell you a little more about Edgar Guest while we're on the topic. And I also want to say for the record that, like, I love poetry and I love good poetry. And I'm not saying that Edgar Guest is a good poet, but I'm just saying that he's not evil. <laughs> No. Um, I think we took this a little too far. Yeah. So, for example, he had a weekly program on NBC Radio from 1931 to 1942, which is just nice. You know, wartime, Mm -hmm. Great Depression. I like that you could turn on the radio and hear a guy read sentimental, (laughs) inspirational poetry. You know, I mean, that's what that's what we needed. And then, in 1951, he had a show on NBC TV called A Guest in Your Home, which is just a good name. Like, that's just... Right? That is a solid pun. It's sweet. It is. He published more than 20 volumes of poetry and is thought to have written over 11,000 poems. And I can tell you, I write poems. I have not written 11,000, and I never will. Mm -mm. Hey, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, if you wrote his poems, you could probably fit 11,000 Yeah. In. I mean, if I, if I lowered my standards, maybe, yeah. <laughs> so most often, his poems were 14 lines long and presented a deeply sentimental view of everyday life. I li- what I like about him is that he doesn't seem to have taken himself too seriously. He said he mm-hmm. was, quote, a newspaper man who wrote verses. He says, of his poems, I... T- Quote, take simple everyday things that happen to me, and I figure it happens to a lot of other people, and I make simple rhymes out of them. So, again, yeah. just like, come a simple on man being simple. And A lot of these would be considered wonderful if they were 1960s folk songs. They'd be classics. Yeah. I totally fell down a rabbit hole. And I really enjoy this poem by Edgar Guest called Father. Can I read it, Terry? I would love nothing more okay my father knows the proper way the nation should be run he tells us children every day just what should now be done he knows the way to fix the trusts he has a simple plan but if the furnace needs repairs we have to hire a man my father in a day or two could land big thieves in jail there's nothing that he cannot do he knows no word like fail Our confidence he would restore, of that there is no doubt. But if there is a chair to mend, we have to send it out. All public questions that arise, he settles on the spot. He waits not till the tumult dies, but grabs it while it's hot. In matters of finance, he can tell Congress what to do. But oh, he finds it hard to meet his bills as they fall due. It makes him sick to read the things lawmakers say. Why, father's just the man they need. He never goes astray. All wars he'd very quickly end as fast as I can write it. But when a neighbor starts a fuss, tis mother has to fight it. In conversation, father can do many wondrous things. 
He's built upon a wiser plan than presidents or kings. He knows the ins and outs of each and every deep transaction. We look to him for theories, but look to Ma for action. <laughs> I think it's great. Isn't that fun? That's a fun poem, you yeah. know? It's a good idea. It's a good concept. Execution is fine. I'm not going to sweat it. Like I said, if that were a song, it would be a hit, you know? Yeah. I think Klaus needs to dial it the fuck down. This book, sometimes like sometimes I um, am reading it and I'm like, oh, I kind of get it. I kind of get the schism. I wouldn't want to hang around with these nerds either. Right? <laughs> right? Like, you guys, come on. Like, you're being a little insufferable. Yeah. I mean, if my choices are between being, like, incredibly pretentious and burning down a few houses, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a little more of a yeah. toss-up than I'd like to admit. Right? <laughs> anyway. Right. Anyway. Other references. Gonna rapid fire move through these ones. At one point, the children are searching through the rubble in the grotto, and Violet finds an odd square stone with messages carved in three languages, which very much sounds like a description of the Rosetta Stone. And I love this one. Sunny at one point uses the word procto to say the other end, a reference to proctology, the branch of medicine concerned with the anus and rectum. (laughs) Again, Sunny just really... My girl's got jokes. Later, when discussing the surprise dessert Sunny has planned, Sunny says, Yom Huladet, which is Hebrew for birthday. And Sunny is referring to a birthday cake for Violet's birthday. Also interesting, I came over, I came across an article today that said that Lemony Snicket said in, I think like 2007, that the Baudelaire's are Jewish. I think I saw that too. Honestly, I believe it. Yeah. I think that just makes sense. Yeah. He was like, there's something very Jewish about unending misery. Is he Jewish? I assumed he was. Okay. (laughs) Let me do that. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I I think the Baudelaire's definitely checks out. I love it. Oh, yeah. The the Gulag Archipelago is another reference. It's a place that's Uh, on one of the maps, I think. And it's the name of a book by... A man whose name I'm about to mispronounce. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So he was a winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature and survived eight years in gulag incarceration. So the gulag was a system of labor camps maintained in the Soviet Union from 1930 to 1955 in which many people died. And so he published a book called The Gulag Archipelago in 1973. And he likened the scattered camps to a chain of islands and, as an eyewitness, described the gulag as a system where people were worked to death. So very, very dark reference there. Yeah, that's a rough one. Okay, what else is there? We don't really have any academic thoughts to share for this one, but Sarah very thoughtfully came up with... (laughs) A list of some fun would-you-rathers that we would love you guys to ponder, to consider, to keep you up at night. (laughs) Sarah? So the first one is, would you rather eat a meal at the Anxious Clown or at Cafe Salmonella? No question. The Anxious Clown is the obvious choice. Cafe Salmonella, please, no. Although I will say that the creamed salmon soup sounded kind of, kind of tight. I would love to see the waiters in the salmon costumes. 
Mm-hmm. I would pay good it's money true. for that, but I'm a vegetarian, so I would be able to eat literally nothing at Cafe Salmonella. Mm. <laughs> I wouldn't even Honestly, be able I'm to Honestly, I'm not sure water. how vegetarians would fare at the Anxious Clown, but you can probably have fries. Yeah, probably fries. Maybe like some lettuce. <laughs> yeah, maybe the sum of everything put in a big dish and fried up with a sauce. Yeah. My favorite meal. <laughs> Uh, Sarah, would you rather have Count Olaf's eyebrow or Mr. Poe's cough? I would rather have Count Olaf's eyebrow because I think I could groom it and have like a kind of like a Lily Collins situation. Fair enough. Because big brows are in. Although I have heard a rumor that thin brows are coming back. Why would you say that out loud? I'm so sorry. It can hear us. (laughs) I'm not going back. I'm not going back to thin brows. And I'm not going back to low-rise jeans. There are other things that I'm happy to like, whatever, fashion is cyclical. I get it. I'm not doing that again. So that's that's my I advice to the youth of America. Don't pluck your eyebrows. Uh, and, unless you are dealing with a count off situation, in which case, do whatever makes you feel best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about you, Terry? I might choose Mr. Poe's cough. I think I would choose Mr. Poe's cough because, frankly, I already feel like I'm living with that. Just, like, on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> I am often hacking. Yeah. So I see no difference. Uh, all right. Would you rather live at Lake Lacrimos or in the Hinterlands? Man, this is a hard one. I will say that Lake Lacrimos sounds really nice in the summer because yeah. it's described as being, like, a tourist destination, mm-hmm. which, you know, sounds pretty, and I love a lake. A little bit wary of the vicious leeches. Yeah. But the hinterlands don't sound great either, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I think I would go with Lake Lacrimose. I think I would too, and I just would never go swimming ever. Yeah, it would just be a visual experience. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. And then we could go to the Anxious Clown. Yeah, exactly. The hinterlands strike me as full of despair. Yeah. Sarah, would you rather spend a weekend as a member of the same Snow Scout troop as Carmelita Spatz or a member of Count Olaf's troop? Well, being in Carmelita's Snow Scout troop sounds awful because being a Snow Scout is, from what I can tell, being cold, wearing a fencing mask, reciting an annoying pledge, mm-hmm. and then having to listen to Carmelita call you a cake sniffer. Count Olaf's troop, I mean, if it's just a weekend, there's a good chance that I won't have to kill anyone or see anyone be killed. And yeah. They travel. And you don't really have a job. You just sort of like, you don't even have to do all that much. No, you, know? you just kind of sit there. I could see myself being like an undercover journalist in Count Olaf's troop or like like a muckraker. <laughs> <laughs> For Count Olaf. You know I love it. I agree. Yeah. I'm with you on that one then. Yeah. Honestly, I love snow. I could think I could handle that aspect of the snow scout experience, but the Carmelita part does sound rough as hell. Yeah. Um, also Bruce and the the speech. Yeah. All right. Well, those of you listening, please ponder these questions. Let us know what you think. And if you have any other would you rathers to throw our way, let us know. So moving into the book was better. The books were adapted into four episodes in season three, a.k.a. the final season of the Netflix A Series of Unfortunate Events series. They came out in January of 2019, and this season has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it was wow very well received. There are some relatively significant plot differences. For example, 
hooky or fernald is a much more developed and sympathetic character in the tv show the groundwork for this sympathy is planted early like in some of the earliest Mm -hmm. episodes we see him when no one's looking like being nice to sunny for example so he's a much more developed and sympathetic character in the show over the course of several episodes we see him develop some affection for sunny and choose not to be as mean to her as he could be and he also plays a somewhat heroic role he lets the Baudelaire's go free multiple times and most significantly, he gets this backstory that explains why he burned down Anwisil Aquatics because he wanted to destroy the Medusoid Mycelium because he thought that it was something that shouldn't exist because it had the power to wreak so much destruction. Also, other differences, like I mentioned, Captain Wittershins is absent in the show, which is great. 10 out of 10. The Baudelaire's briefly encounter Quigley when they're in the Gorgonian Grotto, so he actually gets the sugar bowl. And the conflict between Violet and Fiona is heightened. There's even more tension there. And also they say, I, much less often, thank God. So the reviews were generally positive. The one review that I could find that took some issue with the series came from the AV Club. Uh, It was written by Zach Handlin in 2019. So Zach Handlin says, The drama has all the tension of your average Sunday morning cartoon. People do actually die in a series of unfortunate events, as opposed to, say, Thundercats, but the same predictable rhythm of peril and escape without any meaningful change. A series of unfortunate events is stuck in the curious space of having the simplified logic of children's stories and the world-weary cynicism of a sneering adolescent. It's a combination that's fun to visit, but three seasons is an awful long time to live there. And, you know, I think there's some... I disagree, but... Yeah, I, I'm, I don't agree... But I do think that the series is one that's like, it doesn't to me really work as like something to binge watch. Yeah, I see that. It gets a little tedious. Um, It's more pleasant to watch the episodes as kind of like one-offs and take a breather and then come back to it. Because I mean, they, they really do have a lot of the intensity of like a film. In an IndieWire review by Ben Travers, he wrote, A series of unfortunate events is a tragic story of loss, grief, and how life grows more and more unfair with each passing year lived. But the truths told in these three excellent seasons are pushed into the realm of entertainment by the enthusiasm and talent of its storytellers. I feel like you can tell a lot about a culture by how much adults in 2017 2018 2019 we're like yes we need this yeah we love this yep. we embrace this like it doesn't it's not a great sign for how we are no. doing <laughs> i think we might be having a bad time yeah all right but now let's move on to actually rating the books so let's rate the slippery slope out of 10 snow gnats i'm gonna give this book ooh, eight out of 10 snow gnats I really, really like it. Or maybe even 9 out of 10 snow gnats. It's definitely one that I really enjoy out of the series, although I would not necessarily say that it's my favorite. But yeah, she's up there. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to say 8 out of 10 snow gnats. For me, it's 9 out of 10 snow gnats. I've always liked this book. If they had trapped Esme in the pit, I would push it up to a 10 for me. But 11, perhaps. (laughs) But as it stands, it's a 9. Grim Grotto, on the other hand, hmm. Mm. So let's rate the Grim Grotto out of 10 manatees. I'm going to give the Grim Grotto 4 out of 10 manatees. 
Mm, that's real low. I'm gonna give it five out of ten manatees. It's a series of unfortunate events book, and I like those, but I don't know. Lemony Snicket is not doing what he thinks he's doing in this one. Yeah. The jokes are not hitting. Nothing is landing quite right. I'm saying five out of ten manatees. The setting also sucks. I think that's something that is often, yeah. like, one of the most fun aspects of this book is, like, the weird, absurdist settings. And then in this one, they're just basically, like, rattling around in a tin can. Yeah. <laughs> five out of ten manatees for me. All right. Good job, team. Let's yeah. hit the showers. Thank you all for listening. You can find us on Instagram at reading underscore recess and also on Twitter at reading underscore recess. And our email is readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. Please subscribe, write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and yeah, feel free to send us your thoughts on anything that we've talked about. Yeah, answer some of our would-you-rathers. We'd love to know. And all you false spring queens out there, stay reading.